0: Secret Movie Clubbers to Secret Movie Club Podcast 64. Today, we are continuing our sometime series, The Pieces of Cinema, with sound. Today, we're just going to be talking about sound in all of its iterations and variations in cinema. When I went to film school, they did this great thing where they showed us the opening scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we all just got lost in it with the boulder and Indiana Jones, and then they showed it to us without sound. And all the great cinematography was there. Harrison Ford was there. Steven Spielberg's directing was there. All the money for the production design was there, but there was no sound. And it, it made a really important point. I think that filmmakers sometimes undervalue or underrealize just how critical sound is to making a great movie and having great cinema. First off, we have a special guest today My friend for How many decades? Do we do we want to speak in decades, years, or months, Jimmy? 20,
1: 25 years
0: 20 plus years My friend Jamie Hart Who is also and has been for 20 plus years A working professional in the movie industry At the highest levels He's worked on Hurt Locker uh, He has done sound editing, dialogue editing Sound and effects, re-recording mixer Most recently, Jamie, I think
1: anything you hear On the Netflix Transformer show That's you, right? Everything but the music, and I do have a crew of editors on that too, but I am the sound designer and the re-recording mixer on Transformers War for Cybertron, yeah.
0: And Jamie also, just out of the goodness of his own heart, was the re-recording mixer and the sound editor on our Secret Movie Club radio hours during COVID. And so anything that was amazing about those things largely was in part to Jamie and Connor, but Jamie creating a whole world out of us just recording the dialogue. Give it up for Jamie Hart.
2: Thanks, guys.
3: And who else is with us? Hello, it's Daniel. It's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the People's Champion.
2: Oh, America. Just get on with it.
0: As Edwin makes a sour lemon Buddha face
2: Well, so Secret Movie Clubbers uh, When you
0: hear this, it will be Friday, July 9th This weekend, we are going to be showing Friday night uh, We're doing a double bill of Akira Kurosawa We are going to be doing I Live in Fear And The Lower Depths on 35mm Really a continuation of our 2019 Kurosawa series There were a few prints that we didn't get to show And Janice is being amazing with us So now we're filling in those gaps I love both those movies I Live in Fear particularly is this Kurosawa Sawa movie made just after Seven Samurai that some people have never heard of, where Toshiro Mifune plays a 70-year-old man, and he played it when I think he was 35 years old. And the premise is just basically this 70-year-old man is terrified that the world is about to be engulfed in nuclear war because of the Cold War. And he wants to move all his family, his mistresses, his bastard children, all to South America, because he thinks South America is the only place that's going to escape the nuclear holocaust. It's an incredibly fascinating film, one of Mifune's best performances, and it has one of the great last shots of any kurosawa movie and no one ever talks about it so we're doing that saturday at the million dollar we are doing a double bill at david lynch we are doing Eraserhead head and mulholland drive on 35 millimeter and then saturday night back at the club we are doing another akira kurosawa uh, we're doing akira kurosawa's dreams on 35 millimeter i never cease to be amazed how so many movie makers seem to also be really active dreamers I guess that shouldn't be any kind of surprise, but that always gives me hope because I've always been a mega active dreamer and obsessed with my dreams and I keep a dream journal and this and that. And it turns out that Kurosawa himself was a crazy dreamer and painted his dreams his whole life. And dreams are, I think, about seven or eight of his dreams from when he was a little kid all the way to a dream he had just before he made the movie. And uh, I love that film, Dreams. Fellini was a crazy dreamer. Igmar Bergman was a crazy dreamer. Those are the names that pop up. They would often put their dreams in their movies James Cameron I guess not so weirdly Is a crazy dreamer As always you Go to secretmovieclub.com You can find out Everything we're doing From the podcast To movie writing And just another reminder You have a little less Than two weeks left Actually by the time You hear this You'll have five days left Our short film festival For 2021 Submissions are due Next Tuesday Which is July 12th At 11.59pm And you can just go To secretmovieclub.com And see uh, the rules And regs for that But we would love For you to submit a short It just has to be Five minutes or Fewer and the theme is Los Angeles Rises. So, just as long as it's tangentially about LA, you're good. Or shot in LA, you're good. Just get the Griffith Park Observatory in there and you're good. Send us uh, your short next Tuesday by 11 59 p.m. We will pick 12. Those 12 shorts will play for a year on Channel 35. You'll get $100. I wish it was more, but at least we're going to be paying. All rights will revert to you at the end of the year. And you can go to secretmovieclub.com to learn more about that. And then, just one last thing at the head of the show it, we are recording on Monday, July. And we all found out this morning that the Vista was bought by Quentin Tarantino We don't have much more information about it than that Because we're recording on Monday By the end of the week, by the time you hear this You may know much more, we may know much more As anybody who knows, Secret Movie Club started at the Vista April 2016 We don't yet really know what our place will be or not be in the new ownership But whatever it is, as we know, we'll tell you And really, the bottom line is Quentin Tarantino has devoted his life to a love of cinema. And you know he's going to make sure that the Vista maintains the theatrical experience. You're going to get great movies on film. And the bottom line is we wish the Vista nothing but the best. And, uh, you know, the only proper reaction is to wish cinema and movies and theaters all the best. And he has now put a lot of coin into saving the Vista. And who knows what the Vista would have been without someone coming in and saving it. So... Thank you, Mr. Tarantino, and, and we wish you all the best. And we'll let our audience know if we're going to be screening there uh, once we know more. Today, we are talking about sound in cinema. I think when people think about movies, and I don't want to make a presumption, but often you think about the actors, probably you think about the actors more than anything, if you're just your, your typical uh, moviegoer. Then you think about the story and the director, and then maybe if you get a little deeper into it, you know the screenwriter or you know the cinematographer. One of the biggest unsung heroes of cinema are the sound people. It's such an oceanic topic to get into. Uh, not only do you have to have good dialogue recording, uh, one of the things you'll notice if ever you want to see how important sound is, is listen to a movie that has bad dialogue recording. I'm not talking about bad dialogue. I just mean the actual production sound, the actual recording or re-recording of the the dialogue was poor and you'll see people get antsy. They won't be able to focus. They'll look away. It doesn't matter how good the image looks. If they can't understand what the people are saying, people will zone out of your movie. Definitely an
1: experience you get on like a preview screenings, particularly
3: low budget stuff when they focus so much on like what it looks like and not what it sounds like. And I think people are actually way more willing to deal with something that isn't perfect visually. Like if there's artifacts or anything like that, then audio wise, I think people can like handle less quality video than sound.
1: The whole point is as you say people don't notice it and people don't think about it. So the moment you are thinking about it, or the moment it's making a thing out of itself, that's a serious problem.
3: Because low-quality video can be a choice. Uh,
1: And it's, you know, it kind of fits into people's perception. Like, there's sort of a formalistic aspect to video, and if the image doesn't look great, you can say, well, maybe they're trying to say something with that, because there's this big lit screen in front of me, but that's not necessarily how your brain processes sound. You generally don't think of sound as being, like, a formal thing. Unless you're watching Mank, in which case they intentionally try to make it sound like a 1940s movie.
0: There's a really hilarious bit, in an Albert Brooks movie, Modern Romance, where he's an editor and they have to, like, get the right sound effect for this sci-fi movie starring George Kennedy. Legendary scene. We Show it to all my clients. But what's great about it is also, too, when people see these big budget movies of the imagination, they sort of think that there's a dinosaur roar sound or an asteroid crash sound or a spaceship atmosphere sound. And actually, if you listen to the production design from, let's just say Marvel, you know, Avengers Endgame, you would almost laugh because the stunts and everything that's happening, you would just hear bodies falling on mats and the dialogue sound, and you'd probably hear some clunky sets moving. All that stuff gets removed and then the sound editor comes. In and has to imagine. Okay, what would that sound like? Then, if, if if it's great sound, the irony is that you never think that somebody just as good as the cinematographer or the actor or the director created that oral world for you.
1: Well, you mentioned uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark scene. The other thing that I remember getting shown in two forty one or in the introduction of sound class was the first reel of Star Wars with just the work track. Them all just walking around on particle board and you hear (laughs) David Prowse talking through the mask.
3: It's like there's videos online you see where they take stage performances and they like take out all the audio and make it sound like really kind of awkward. Do you know what I'm talking about? They'll do that where they kind of like reverse audio engineer to make it sound like what it would actually sound like. And it always sounds really awkward and strange.
4: There's a Beach Boys videos where they just take all the sound effects that they're making in the video and replace that over it. And it's, um, it's so funny. And so
0: Jamie, let me throw it to you because you've dedicated your life and you're amazing at it to creating a cinematic world in sound. If you need to talk to a filmmaker about sound, what are the fundamentals you want them thinking of? I
1: mean, usually when you sit down with them for the first time, you're seeing a film with just the work track. There's just the production. There's kind of a basic idea of what they want the music to sound like. And a lot of the questions you have are about intention, sort of emotionally where you want scenes to go and the kind of ideas you want to communicate. Because the sound design is going to reinforce sort of the subtext of a lot of things. And it's going to reinforce things like it's sort of the opposite of editing, where editing is kind of constructing, like from your editing podcast, which is really great. You talk about, you know, constructing ideas out of the juxtaposition of shots, whereas sound is sort of the exact opposite, where you're actually kind of binding everything back together again horizontally and you're trying to construct sort of a continuous reality and so you're doing things like you're creating the setting you're creating the things in the space with people each of these can have sort of an emotional sort of quality to them and they can also have a more sort of literal sort of meaning to them
0: although jamie would it be just to throw this in kind of devil's advocate style One of my favorite filmmakers is Jean-Luc Godard, and Godard definitely uses sound in a crazy way where someone will talk, but a lion will come out, or he'll drop in like a bar of music and then immediately yank it out. So sound can also be used in kind of a dialectic way too, if you want to. Not a lot of people use it that way, but it could be used that way.
1: Godard specifically, I think he's really trying to go for, you know, an unsettling sort of quality. And he knows that that'll get you in a way that just putting an image there isn't going to, because there's a sort of literalism to the image that you don't really have with sound necessarily.
3: This might be jumping ahead, but one of my favorite moments of sound use, it wouldn't be me if I didn't mention the Evil Dead, maybe one of the best jump scares ever, spoilers, but towards the end, this is kind of the inverse of the Godard thing, but kind of a similar thing when he's leaning up against the door and there's this long period where very slowly all the sound cuts out and there's like a five second spot where there's no sound on the track and then suddenly something really big happens.
1: And you, you construct those moments, like particularly in the mixing, because you find those and you see those moments. And usually you, d- you discover at that moment that they don't want music there and they want to do something kind of special and it's going to focus in on that.
0: Uh, you also, over the last number of years, have been doing tons of amazing sound work for Blumhouse. The
1: films I have done for Blumhouse would include uh, Insidious Chapter 3, or no, uh,
3: I would remember everything. <laughs> Connor, (laughs) delete all this. Um, (laughs) That's too funny of a beat to completely go now. There's
1: Insidious 4, The Last Key. I was the supervisor and the mixer on that. Uh, I did Truth or Dare. The last one I did for them was Fantasy Island. Prior to that, I worked on a movie called Home, which was released as Delirium. After I graduated from USC in 2000, I worked for three or four years for a supervisor named Stephen Hunter Flick. Famously, he had worked for Quentin Tarantino. He had done Pulp Fiction. He did Reservoir Dogs. He did every project for him up until, but not including Kill Bill, I want to say. Going off of that, he'd worked for Sally Mankey, who was his editor on films, including All the Pretty Horses. After I worked for Steve Flick, I spent a couple years kind of bouncing around. I worked for a couple of different supervisors, and then I started working for Sony Pictures around 2007 working for a supervisor there Paul Odison. And I was a sound effects editor on The Hurt Locker. That was the first show I was an effects editor on. A bunch of different things happened. I worked on High School Musical 3. I was the co-supervisor of that over at Disney. I came back to Sony. I worked on a bunch of Roland Emmerich films. So I worked on 2012. Oh, yeah, I remember that era. uh, White House Down. I worked on a few more films for Catherine. Zero Dark Thirty in Detroit. I cut effects on it. The
0: Chapter One. So so in other words, audience, you're listening to someone who, who has basically been doing sound on many of the movies that you have seen and loved.
4: When I, when I think of sound design specifically, there's such a visceral quality to it that appeals to me in that regard. And I often turn to things like my first experience with Speed Racer in a theater beyond just a, a visual. Wachowski's like, best movie. And you can fight me on that. I, I might agree with you. I adore Speed Racer.
1: I
0: think Speed Racer is the Wachowski's best movie.
4: There's just such a sonic quality to it. I saw it on an IMAX my first time in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and no one was there. And I was confused. And as the movie continued, I was just like this is the greatest like I'll never be able to replicate this and I think about that a lot I couldn't really tell you why I think it's just the sound design I think along with the visuals is so tied into the way that they're telling the story and the way that they're utilizing what film changes what a movie adaptation live action pairing with their with their special effects it differs from the cartoon that it is is pulling from but it was like a, it was an understanding of what the anime does specifically and what that art what that type of art brings to the picture and what they could do to adapt it to live action I think especially in sound design It is all about, reality doesn't exist, but it is live action, so your brain associates reality. So they seem to be actively working to engage you to believe that these fantastical things make sense, both visually and on a sound level, even though they don't. But it works so well in conjunction that your brain, it's almost like an ADHD blast of all times when stuff's going on and you just constantly work. And the way it overlays, you're getting flashbacks in the middle of races that are like superimposed over other images. And so there's multiple soundscapes happening and it's just a constant, you're like at war or in the same way that you're in the character's head. I think it's really unique in that.
1: Lana Wachowski wrote, or she gave an interview at some point, and she said that Speed Racer for them was their experiment or their attempt to create a stream of consciousness in movies. I think I
4: believe that. I think that's that's what you get from it.
1: I mean, and the sound design, and also not sound design, but also very important is the score, the Michael G. Aquino score in that movie. It's just really so much fun. I own that score. It ties everything together, and the sound design gives you something to kind of hold on to. And even something like dialogue editorial, which isn't necessarily something you ever are supposed to think about, but the way things overlap, the way everything kind of
4: fits together.
1: You're just carried moment to moment, and you're not in a place, you're not like locked on a particular
4: concept or action, it's all just ideas. And the the shifts feel natural. I think his score score, especially in regards to that within the realm of the sound design, when it needs to be the center of things, it is, but it's also so willing to let it also flow in with the design of the thing, to not dominate, which I think is interesting, especially in a movie that just continues to dominate you visually. Also, the the cars are just kick ass. We
0: actually we almost buried one of the biggest leads, which is that music, even though it is distinct from sound design and sound editing, music is also the sound. And, you know, you were talking, Jamie, about playing Star Wars without the sound editing play Star Wars without the John Williams score, it is also a different movie. Also, when you see filmmakers who have a real sense of music, or they get a good composer has a good sense of music, or it's picking, you know, like Scorsese does, uh, really almost better than anybody, picking music of the last 40 years and dropping it in and having that become score. Really, a filmmaker it needs to have a sonic and a musical understanding if they really want Cinema to sort of achieve
2: its heights. Uh, Charlie Chaplin's uh, first film that he used sound with—I forgot the title of the film—City uh, Lights. It was during a time when all studios were installing their sound equipment or something like that for you know talking pictures. And next thing you know, uh, it affected a lot of silent actors who were only used for their looks and the way they act, but some some of their voices were really messed up. And then for Charlie Chaplin, he, he somewhat adapted it because he never wants his character to talk. He never wants him to talk. But for this film, he used a combination of silent and with sound, mainly for his fanatics. And um, there's one part of the film which I really love and where he starts singing.
0: Oh, you know what you're talking, Edwin, you're talking about Modern Times. Modern Times has Charlie Chaplin singing a song called Smile. And he he uses sound great. That's a great example.
2: And then the boss of the factory, he speaks. Either one of those two is is a great use of sound, and for a silent filmmaker who embodied the the sound era, perfect.
1: It's interesting. He and the early films of Hitchcock in the sound era were particularly deft about their sound design, because there's a lot of like terrible examples of sound design in early sound cinema, and. I think it has probably has a lot to do with the fact that Charlie Chaplin was just a very powerful figure, and he could talk his way through a lesser director or a lesser producer might get dissuaded away from doing more experimental things, or doing things that were against what whatever some sound engineer was telling them to do. And in that period, they got very, very conservative technically. That was the
0: whole era where they would put a mic in a flower pot, and the actors would just have to stand around the flower pot and do the whole scene with the camera
1: not moving. And that's a solution to a certain problem, yeah. It's interesting they could get away with that. There are two really good books about that period. There's Scott Amon, who's a film historian. He wrote The Speed of Sound. And if you ever want to read like 300 books about the entire silent to sound film transition from the late 1920s, early 1930s, he's got it. And a lot of it has to do with misconceptions on the part of studio executives. Part of the problem, too, was some of the early sound processes were very limited in terms of what you could present, like Vitaphone only lets you go 10 minutes or so. And Warner Brothers at the time was only using it to market like vaudeville acts. It got very linked in people's minds with the idea of like a live to film presentation. Another really good book was Mr. Burns Goes to Hollywood, which is the memoirs of Frank Capra's sound. A recordist. He had a lot of really interesting stories about... He had started out in radio and then had gotten hired by a studio. He had got hired by United Artists, as a matter of fact, speaking of Chaplin. Basically, they just paid him a lot of money to kind of sit around all the time because they didn't really have a place for him to be and they didn't really know what he was supposed to be doing yet, but they knew they had to have all these sound people on staff because they needed to be ready for whatever was going to happen. And in that period, he has all these crazy stories about, uh, like, one sound guy that he was working with, like, demanded two hours off for lunch every day so they have his ear washed at the doctor's. <laughs> (laughs) And there were a lot of stories of sound guys pulling weird stuff like that. These weird power plays because heads of studios were terrified of this whole sound thing. And it was just such a disruptive thing.
0: Well, there was. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about just that period. They were bringing in all these Broadway directors because they thought that at this point the movies were going to have to be like Broadway plays because of dialogue. And all these great silent movie makers were getting marginalized and sidelined. And then suddenly they were like, wait, you you can have the sound, but you can also have the cinema.
3: David Lynch is so interesting because he's actually the sound designer on a lot of his stuff, specifically on The Return. He's the sound designer on the totality of it. He's like the single credit there. I always think about how he apparently like left a note when Criterion was remastering Mulholland Drive for them to mix the movie like one degree hot, like one decibel above, which is... A ch- uh, just like a choice, I-, I saw Jamie give a maybe slightly dismissive reaction to that. But I, I did
1: not do that for the record. I think he's completely misinterpreting my facial expression.
3: <laughs> I think it's nice that he thinks so much about sound. yeah I don't know if another big director these days does.
1: legendarily him and Alan Splet worked for a year on the sound design for Eraserhead, right?
0: Which will be showing this Saturday.
1: Yeah. Oh, check it out. Like him and Alan Split in like the basement of the AFI, I guess. He'd show up at 9 a.m. and him and Alan would do one sound that day and it would be, well, today we're going to work on the bed creeks or uh, we're going to work on the elevator.
3: Speaking of AFI, I got to do a little call out here. When I was at AFI, they didn't do sound stuff. And specifically, I volunteered to be the sound recorder on some of the stuff we shot and they didn't even let me do it separate. I had to do it plugged into the camera. And it was a nightmare.
1: Craig, did you ever take uh, The Filmmakers, that class at SC? I don't think so. Who who taught that? Was it like Richard Jewell? or? It wasn't Rick Jewell. It was someone else. It was in production. It wasn't in crit. It was a very, very nice old uh, producer studio executive. And I remember he, he brought in screenwriters. Ale- he brought in Alexander Payne. That
0: was almost certainly Larry Arbach. He was like the only guy who had the pull to get those guys, yeah.
1: He had the uh, production designer from American Beauty he had editors, DPs, production designers, costume designers, every department. I did ask him once, are you going to have any sound people? And he said, no, sound is not central to the art of filmmaking. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because that's really not something that was like a USC thing. USC sort of famous for trying to have a little more parody about it than that. I was
0: going to say, isn't Rydstrom out of USC? Yes, Gary Rydstrom graduated from USC. One of the great modern sound designers.
1: A lot of sound designers from that era came from USC. I'm not sure exactly what that comes from. At the AFI particularly, I know they do kind of try to focus on above-the-line kind of interests.
3: It's divided into six groups. Writers, directors, producers, production designers, cinematographers, and editors.
1: And I would also mention you know, collateral to this, is we did lose one of our Academy Award categories last year. There's one now where there used to be sound editing and sound mixing. There was now just sound.
0: Which is so interesting because
1: those are two totally different things. I mean, historically, it wasn't really separate as it is. They were giving out sound Oscars from the very early days, but it usually was awarded to the department in the first couple of years. Like, the first couple of years, Paramount Public's sound department swept. And that would just be in the, the department was the winner of the Oscar that year. Paramount's sound department would win the Oscar. And then they started awarding it to individual films around towards the end of the 1930s, I want to say. But occasionally, they would issue special achievement awards. Like, starting in the 1970s, particularly, it became a regular thing around 1977 or 78, around the time Star Wars. Um, the way they did the voting was you had to score a high enough score in order to get an Oscar for sound editing that year. So there'd occasionally be years where there wasn't an Oscar for sound editing. But pretty consistently, there was one for mixing and one for editing through the 80s and the 90s and the aughts.
0: One of my favorite edits is from The 39 Steps, where the woman who cleans Robert Donat's apartment discovers the dead body, and she turns around to scream, but you don't hear her scream, you hear a train. And the train goes... (laughs) And then it cuts to him on the train going to Scotland to try to clear his name and figure out what's going on. Like everything in cinema, like everything in anything, if you're creative and you, you just go, OK, I get these are the rules, I get these are the fundamentals, but what if we did this or that? Another early sound movie that I'm obsessed with is Fritz Lang's M. If people have not seen Fritz Lang's M and how he uses sound in 1931, one of the things is that he identifies the child killer played by Peter Lorre by his whistle. The great reveal of the film is there's a blind balloon seller. Peter Lorre whistles the Hall of the Mountain King by Grieg compulsively. And the blind balloon seller is like, this is the man. (laughs) And it's just such a great use of sound. And then there's this stuff he'll do, like you guys were talking about, too, where it's this thing where if you have constant sound, constant music, and then you bring it all down and then there's nothing, suddenly the audience leans in. And if you just do one sound effect or like one of my favorite moments in Bob Fosse's All That Jazz is he's about to have a heart attack. Everybody's at a table read laughing and talking, and he drops out all the sound. But the director played by Roy Scheider scratching the table, tapping his fingers, lighting a cigarette and then breaking a pencil. I mean, just when you see people who are like, that's what you can do with sound. Jamie, if you're working with a director. And they bring you on before they even start shooting the movie. What's like the one thing you would try to tell them to think about in terms of where they're going to end up in post with sound that could raise the quality of the whole film?
1: Leave space. And that's the exact opposite of usually what they're going to hear from most people. And think about like information denial. Think about what you don't want to show people be intentional about it and think about what things you don't want to show people that you want to convey by some other means
0: you mean like you could convey by a sound instead of by visual the
1: peter laurie example is probably like i'm almost positive they sat down in a room and thought of like what are we going to do to distinguish this character that we could have never done with a silent film you never see his face there's no information and it's all conveyed by sound the thing is is people try to get their film so tight before they start doing sound sometimes it's difficult to have like completely like realized creative ideas when it's all just talking. I have mixed some television and a lot of television shows are structured that way because television is a writer's medium and it's generally built around really heavy dialogue. So a lot of television just is just talking.
0: But you're saying like if you're editing a picture leave some space for sound design.
1: Well uh, editors usually have a good idea about what to do there too. It is kind of a more question of what are we not going to say? What are we not going to show? What are we going to try to tell the story with as an alternative, a a kind of a medium that people are going to accept more prima facie for what it is. People can question what someone is saying. People can see something and sort of reject it intellectually. But if they hear something, it's sort of a way for people to know something without even realizing that they know it.
3: On all these pieces of podcasts, I've given like a tip for beginners I was gonna ask you if there's somebody who's just starting to work with sound in movies, what would be like the first thing you would tell them to like pay attention to? The first thing to know?
1: Like a beginning filmmaker. Watch some Coen Brothers movies. The sound in the Coen Brothers movies is generally the best you can possibly get. They've been working with Skip Leafsay since forever. What's an interesting exercise to think about on their films in particular is every scene seems to have one sound that is perfect and tells the story perfectly. And the scene is kind of built around it. What I'm always thinking of is a uh, Hudsucker Proxy. Everybody go see the movie. But if you haven't seen Hudsucker Proxy, there's a scene, he is riding in the elevator with Buzz the elevator and he's got the blue letter and he's about to deliver it to Paul Newman. And he walks out of the elevator, the elevator shuts behind him. And we just got to this huge like dialogue run where Buzz is doing his little spiel. And he says, good luck, you're gonna need it. And the elevator closes. And Elver goes, and you hear it suck away behind him. And he's standing on the landing for the 48th floor, the top brass floor. You see these two glass doors and you hear nothing but for this scratching sound. And you're like, what is that? And he walks a little couple steps further and he looks to the right and he sees this maintenance man. And he's got this knife and he's scraping the name Wearing Hudsucker off of the office door. It's kind of immediately you understand what's been happening.
4: The entirety of Barton Fink is, like the Coens in terms of their sound design, they seem to just have like, they have a relationship in their sound design as like a key tool. It's
1: not necessarily even story points. It's just these textures that immediately like put you in that place and time. Edwin,
0: as somebody who loves movies, do you ever think about the sound? When do you become aware of the sound and go, man, that's
2: great sound? Only when I'm watching a foreign movie. That's basically it. Or some artistic director. Particularly the one that I'm thinking of right now is uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker. That one has uh, sound things like all over the movie. It's incredible. But there's one scene that I really love and it was making me go to sleep where they're like in this warehouse or something like that and you see this water while like rain is pouring down you can hear it really clearly and there's one where they threw a rock and these these sand dunes and you hear the thing hit the dirt and this bounce is bouncing you clearly hear it it's honestly probably the greatest thing ever in a movie there's like no dialogue i'm i'm pretty sure if i'm saying this right like Half of the movie, there's no one talking. The only thing that's, t- that's talking is the sound. That's all you ever hear in that film is the sound in that film, which is quite amazing because, in a way, it's almost like the sound is the dialogue of the picture, which me thinking about it, I might have to go back and watch it again because it was really cool.
4: Tarkovsky locks the camera off in every shot so the sound is doing all of the heavy lifting to a degree. I think throughout the whole thing you see that you hear things throughout that entire movie that you have no concept of what it is so it just kind of seeps into your brain. For me, it's kind of a dread thing of like, what are they going to run into to get in the way of them? And then the next scene, the next shot might give you a little bit more of an example of that same sound now at an angle where you can kind of start to grasp what it is that I think is really interesting.
1: It's like a sensory deprivation. More like the information denial kind of
3: thing. You know, we haven't even talked about like ambient sound. I think that's why like David Lynch has always been so good is the use of like drones in the background. Um, Sound is like jokes. We talked about Wet Hot American Summer last week. There's that pottery shattering sound effect that everyone has. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. use it like a dozen times in that movie, like a character will just throw something off screen. It's like
1: premiere edition disc 16 track. The problem is there's not actually a lot of ceramic smashes in the commercial library. I know exactly which one you're talking about.
3: It's this one right here.
1: <laughs> it's the Krillin Nescar. <laughs>
3: Sound, you can do all sorts of things. See, like right now we're in a big city. And now suddenly we're in, a, we're in an African jungle. Thanks, GarageBand, for these basic sound loops that I'm putting over this. People
1: think, like, if you just give me these 10, like, I'll be able to cover all these different situations. But it's really not that way at all. I'd done a little work with the sound supervisor, Alan Murray. He recently passed away, unfortunately, but he's done all of Clint Eastwood's films. He would famously bring 200 channels of backgrounds to the pre-dub every time and it would be like airs at every different pitch and frequency because he always felt like every location has to feel a little different it's not just like setting the stage but it also like well it's the location it's the biome it's the time of year it's the time of day it can also kind of frame you kind of relative to where you are because other things in this scene like in zero dark 30 i did that last reel where they get into the house and they, they shoot osama spoilers What I did for that was I got the picture of the Osama bin Laden compound off of the New York Times or whatever. Something that Catherine Bigelow does incredibly is her management of the geography is always just perfect. You never, for a moment, are lost. You know exactly where everybody is relative to other people. When people move, you know where they've ended up. And so what I did was... You have two or three different groups of people marching into the house. And so every time we would cut from one group of people to another, there were groups of people outside guarding the house to make sure the Pakistanis didn't roll up. There were people inside the house marching through. Every time we switched locations, I had a different pass of backgrounds. And it might even be all the same sounds. They just had a different level. I'd say like, oh, these people were on the inside of the wall, so the crickets aren't maybe as loud and you're hearing more of the air conditioning rumble. Or if people are on the guarding the house, they're on the street, so you might be starting to hear the city rumble in the background a little bit more. And it's all the same sounds, but there's like 20 of them because there's 20 different sort of conceptual sources of sound in the scene, right? And they all convey a slightly different idea. The air conditioning means you're near the house. There might be an electric hum from lights because they have these like arc light or the uh, mercury vapor lamps lighting things up. There may be crickets. There may be different kinds of animals. Dogs barking. Dogs barking. Ubiquitous sound, particularly if you have gunfire. Backgrounds can be a science. I guess I would wrap that up.
3: What's like the hardest thing you've ever had to do?
1: I had a real challenge, and it was a very much a learning experience doing the animated show, doing Transformers, because I'd never really done much animation before. And it's still basically pursues a kind of realism in the sense that they are like real creatures. It's not Looney Tunes. It's not, I want to make a negative compare. It's not like Family Guy or like Star Trek Lower Decks or something like that. It's kind of pursuing this idea that these are real beings in a real space and they are obeying the normal laws of physics. It's not a funny show. It's very dark and very serious. So like tonally, it has to be still very realistic. Achieving that and achieving that effect with animated images was different and new and there was a lot of like technique and a lot of things you have to remember to do a lot of experience that i just didn't have i had previously worked on uh, penguins of madagascar and that was probably the only other animated film i'd worked on but i hadn't worked on that fully and i'd done kind of the same sort of thing i do on like a live action film i did like vehicles i did um, weapons and stuff but a lot of the things that were new to me was covering things like foley of animated
3: beings and
1: uh, making it feel kind of real and grounded.
3: What's the most satisfying work you've ever done? I
1: was very happy with how insidious The Last Key came out in the final run of it. And that was something that worked a long time on it was tough. The overall process and getting it all done, also like everybody was really happy too, that helps a lot. I'm working for a filmmaker, right? And I wanna make sure he's happy and he's getting what he wants. And it's challenging in sound too, where filmmakers are almost never their own sound people. So they don't always think their way through sound design and they don't necessarily know how to give direction on sound design. And you have to bring a lot to the table. You have to very much kind of direct yourself with a lot of filmmakers they have to really like it the first time because they may not necessarily know how to tell you what they want. And you have to kind of hold their hand. And if they're going for something that's new and different, it can be very challenging sometimes.
4: With what Jamie was talking about in animation, I think stuff like Studio Ghibli, their sound design is so interesting because in the same way that they allow their visual space, their sound design and stuff is often just a landscape that sort of exists for 30 seconds to like really bring you into the scene or sort of give you an ease that I think is really unique to the animation space. The Wind Rises. You ever see that one?
1: Literally every sound effect in that movie is somebody going into a microphone
4: going... (sighs) And all the the propellers. It gives it like a handmade quality that I think fits beyond the animation, like the storytelling. Gary Rydstrom. The more obvious things were like movies that are about the sound, like Blowout or The Conversation. But there's also a few directors in the last year. We had Sound of Metal that was an experience that I didn't get to see in a theater, but I experienced in headphones. And I rewatched with headphones because it's so much of the storytelling is within the realm of what's happening in your ears, as with the character on screen. And then something like Baby Driver, which in the same thing is, is a character that has an issue with sound that he's struggling with and therefore that sound design represents him throughout the movie beyond just the musical choices. It's the way that it opens with the ping that uh, tinnitus, the, the ringing that you hear it starts and that underlying you hear it throughout the film that I think is, is really impactful. The last like moment that I was thinking in terms of thinking of great sound moments is funny enough in, in the social network the scene with Justin Timberlake and Jesse Eisenberg in the nightclub. Legendary party scene. Yeah. Unbelievable. And if you watch it at home, it is the loudest wall of noise, but the clearest dial. It feels real. Like they feel like they're screaming. It's the exact type of thing where you almost have to like lean in as if you're at, you're there with them. And I, I always think about that a lot. It's when I get, when I, anytime I upgrade a sound system, I often turn to that just to be like, how is this going to sound when it's every soundscape option is is coming at me at once.
1: Fincher always has great sound. His sound designer is Ren Kleiss, who is amazing. All of his films, very, very good sound work. Ren did like a 30 minute Like, how do we do it literally on that scene? Because those scenes in general, they don't go over. They don't necessarily work. So they did all these different things. Firstly, the actors are screaming at each other and that's kind of 80% of what makes it work. That's like something like a director should know in production when he's shooting a scene. If he wants the scene to sound loud, something they have to do is in this case, they just had like party music playing really loud on set and then they would cut it off right before the dialogue started. So the actors had in their head what the level was going to be, what they had to be able to talk over in order for them to be able to hear each other. So they're absolutely belting at each other. And then Renklais took the music and then they processed it like 18 different ways for distortion and for level and for compression and equalization and worldizing and all these different things we do to sound recordings in order to make them sound like they're in a space. He ran them through like an old Mackie mixer, like with... The input gain cranked so that they were clipping in the Mackie mixer. And they listened to all of these one by one by one. And none of them were really working. So they just played all of them.
4: That's so effective. So, Did
1: anybody see Mank? And did anybody have any particular feelings about the recreation of like a 1940s movie sound?
4: I actually
0: really loved Mank. It's a great movie. And I actually think it's, it's again one of those movies that you probably people have to see a few times because I really think it's David Fincher subtly warning people what they're going to get in for if they want to be a movie maker but all the recreation and and the sound and the processing and the real change marks I thought it was fun, but it didn't really take away or add to my enjoyment of the picture. Personally, I thought, well, if he wants to do it, he wants to do it.
4: It was, it was another one I watched over the holidays with headphones. The theaters weren't open at the time. So it's something I'd like to see on the big screen to get a better idea. But I, the sound design is what stood out to me more than the replication of the film look, because I think there was this obsession in the sound design that played so true to sort of what I associate with classic Hollywood. Whereas on the visual side, it seemed like a very specifically digital image that was made to look away. But I thought was so interesting. Like, why should shoot digitally i'm assuming for control but why try to replicate it when you could just do it like that whereas the sound to me i and it's probably because of my i don't have the education in that regard but it felt as if it was tailored around something i associate with classics that was really me if that was successful. I mean, I
1: think what happened was David Fincher told his team, like, I want to shoot it on film and I want to shoot it like a 1940s movie. And I want to shoot the sound on film like a 1940s movie. And then somebody told him, said, like, well, you'd like to do 60 takes, David. (laughs) That's fair. We can't
3: can't afford it.
1: Yeah, you couldn't really do that. Uh, You could, could, but it's not a Netflix movie anymore.
0: Another, it's funny that we keep coming back to Hitchcock and Lynch and Coen's. I'm obsessed with the sound design of Hitchcock's Rear Window, which is in my top 10. When you watch Rear Window, you're so into the story that you have to watch it like ten times. And you're like, wait, he's putting in clearly they're near a port, because you hear all of these port sounds at midnight in these boats. There's the world eye sounds of people in different apartments. There's the world eye sounds of the music they're listening to. You can hear the kids far away. And the whole movie was shot on a sound stage. And when you watch Rear Window, that sound design is so beautiful. And so perfect for the film. And the other person I want to shout out is Orson Welles. And something that I've always loved when I listened, not necessarily when he didn't have any money, but when you listen to Orson Welles, I always think a lady from Shanghai. And there's this moment where they're in Cuba, I think, but they're definitely in the Caribbean or Mexico or uh, Cabo. And he's following Rita Hayworth. And as he's following her, it's probably Pachanga music is coming out of bars. And he worldizes the Pachanga music. And so you suddenly feel like you're in some Mexican coastal town, and he's following her at two in the morning, and just even the worldizing, which is how far away the music is, what kind of echoing it has, if it's coming from a radio, if it's coming from a jukebox, if it's coming from someone's television. I'm fascinated with that too. So I just want to shout out that is yet another level of sound. I'm super immersive. <laughs>
1: Pop culture and final thoughts. I think the only thing I would say is make sure you check out my project, Transformers War for Cybertron Kingdom, which is the third installment of the now trilogy uh, on Netflix coming out July 25th. 5th, I want to say. It's the end of this month. The trailer just dropped today, which is the Monday we're recording. And uh, you can see that on YouTube, getting some great response. And I want everybody to see it. It's, it's awesome. It came out very good.
0: And, and it's on Netflix And one more time. It's called what? Transformers War for Cybertron. Check it out. Jamie Hart. And you can listen to all of Jamie's work on any number of the things that he referenced. I want to go back and listen to the Zero Dark Thirty now, Osama bin Laden third act, after hearing you talk about it.
3: I rewatched, speaking of Speed Racer, I rewatched that with my friends last week. That movie's dope. We need to show that movie. And then yesterday for July 4th with Casey Young, uh, we went and did a double feature of The Forever Purge, uh, which was fun, and Zola, which was great, and the weirdest Marvel Comics adaptation I've ever seen. And then I also, lastly, want to give a shout out to my dog, Batman, because he turned 10 this last Friday. Happy birthday, Batman. You're a good boy, Batman. And you can also watch me play video games and see him roll around on the couch behind me sometimes at twitch.tv slash cruz
2: first off i want to shout out to richard donner who just passed away today people like to watch his movie inside moves probably one of the best scenes ever done one of my favorite films craig you want not let me post it that's fine i know how it is <laughs> saw rocky and red dawn at the new bev great american double feature rocky 4 was tremendous a lot of yelling and freeze frames and a lot of slow-mo and uh, sweats and uh great 80s montage. In the course of like 90 minutes, they managed to fit three montages into that one movie, which is insane and uh yeah Rocky IV is just uh, amazing man so uh, it's great to see you with the audience in a theater I
4: rewatched Speed for the first time since I was young Speed is unbelievable like from an action craft like filmmaking perspective it is so good and I'm not sure there's a more attractive person than Dennis Hopper than Dennis Hopper screaming it's Sandra (laughs) Bullock in that it's the I mean the her and Keanu's like chemistry in that is like sometimes I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to watch I also watched Stick It, which is this great, like, 2000s gymnast movie that apparently was like, it's become an instrumental thing of young women coming out, wheels in their gay through that film. My best friend, Lacey told me that that was her thing and that I had to watch it. So he, she made me watch it. It's great. And then finally, I watched Steven Soderbergh's new movie, No Sudden Move. It's it's great. It's we're sort of spoiled. Soderbergh is so prolific that I feel sometimes we overlook his stuff, almost as spoiled. But this it's Don Cheadle, Benicio del Toro, David Harbour, Ray Liotta, John Hamm, Brendan Fraser, Kieran Culkin, among many others. And it's this great criminal heist crime, you know what's gonna go wrong movie. It's on HBO Max. I think it's showing at the landmark right now, but it's not really available in theaters. It's dope. It's so good.
1: On the Soderbergh subject, I would say if you haven't seen The Nick. Go check out The Nick. And also, Soderbergh is somebody who always works with the same sound designer. He works with Larry Blake since high school, I want to say. They've known each other since forever.
0: You and I have worked on everything I've done since, uh,
1: I think, my late 20s. We did not know each other in high school, but I have senior high school, as I was recently (laughs) reminded. Oh, yeah, (laughs) Laguna Beach High School? When we scouted, uh, yeah, when we scouted Four Corners. I would just say, you're amazing
0: at what you do, Jamie. I've been very, very lucky. You're also, you've got a tremendously good heart. Thank you. I always get, like, (laughs) <laughs> I always get Jupiter-level sound, so I'm so grateful that, that uh, you are a friend and also super talented. It helps.
1: That's sweet. Thanks, Boz. And
0: I also had my most amazing experience smoking pot ever with you, which I tell anybody who'll listen.
1: I know, that was your last time, too, wasn't it? It was pretty—yeah, well, that was my mic drop. You didn't need it after that. No. I, well, when you meet God, what, what else do you do?
0: Where do you go from there? You and Lucas and me in your apartment after Star Wars the Christmas The special. Star
1: Wars holiday special.
0: That's right, Life Day.
1: It's an inclusive holiday special special.
0: Uh, we showed two Robert Altman movies this last week at the Million Dollar Theater. We did uh, Nashville and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And I hadn't seen Nashville in a little bit, but it's my favorite Altman movie. It takes a lot of effort. It's a long movie. It's asking a lot of you. But it's such a intelligent film. And McCabe and Mrs. Miller, too. When R- Robert Altman's at his best, you're not quite sure what he's saying, not because he doesn't know what he's saying, but because he really is... Saying a number of things that are pretty Complicated and layered which is Just as life is like there are two or three Almost contradictory things you're Feeling or thinking at the same time when you watch His pictures and and that's just like life Just like our human nature just like anything And I and watching Nashville I was yet again reminded how if we don't get civically involved, if we don't pay attention to what's going on in the world, if we don't take an interest, then whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And we're going to have ourselves to blame if we just say, well, I'm setting it out. I'll let other people fight for voting rights or I'll let other people fight for a democratic society or I'll let other people fight for free speech or I'll let other people fight for this or fight for that. You know, if we're just like I just want to be entertained and I don't want to have to deal with it and I just don't think it touches my life. When you watch Nashville You go, well, then, you know, you're taking a huge risk because we take a lot of what we get for granted because of fights people before us fought. And I just would say that Nashville got me thinking on that, as it always does. And then McCabe and Mrs. Miller is fascinating, too. I'd never noticed that. I think Julie Christie sells out Warren Beatty in that film. And I've never actually made that connection until seeing it this time, where she keeps telling Warren Beatty to make the deal, make the deal, make the deal with these guys. It's this great Western if you've never seen it. And Warren Beatty thinks that he gets it and he knows what he's doing. And she keeps going, make the deal, they're going to come back and kill you. And he never makes the deal. And then she leaves one night and just goes and smokes opium. And I never put together until this time that I think she does that because she knows the guys are coming. And she knows that Warren Beatty has not made the deal. But anyway, you'll have to see the picture.
1: Altman's sort of famous for pioneering sound production techniques because of all of his overlapping dialogue. And It does relate sort of to what you're saying about he's not afraid of, like, putting up things that maybe he doesn't completely, like, have the idea of, like, how it all comes together. I mean, he was the first person to do his production recording with, like, a 24-track recorder. And isn't McCabe and Mrs. Miller famous for that? Uh, Did he do that in McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Nashville's more famous for that just because, you know, he'll do these very long oners where he'll have 20 or 30 speaking parts and all of these people will come up or pick down and they'll have all of their scene, their conversation going on. It's all being recorded simultaneously.
0: Gosford Park was like that too.
1: Yeah, it's his thing. Uh, I mean, he, there's the old story that like Jack Warner fired him off of a movie because he kept having the actors talk over each other. He felt like maybe the director was like tying the hands of some editor who he wasn't going to know too much. And of course, that's exactly the point. That Altman wanted it to feel like immediate And he wanted to have these people delivering That kind of performance
0: Look up Altman and his sound recording techniques as well And on that note, uh, this was a large Sprawling uh, podcast Okay, should I start recording now? Oh Oh, no! no. To wrap everything up guys, you can find out everything we're doing At secretmovieclub.com This Friday, a double bill of Akira Kurosawa On 35 at the Secret Movie Club Theater Saturday, a double bill of David Lynch At the Million Dollar Theater, Eraserhead And uh, Mulholland Drive And that's looking to be our biggest event yet since we've come back from COVID, I think it actually already is our biggest event. So a lot of people want to see a racer head. At 11 a.m. in the morning A lot of people want to see Mulholland Drive at 2 p.m. And then that night We're doing Akira Kurosawa's Dreams Thank you, everybody Remember that the deadline For submitting your short Is next Tuesday, July 12th And uh, we would love you To be part of the Secret Movie Club Short Film Festival 2021 And let's give it up for Jamie Thank you for being here, Jamie Thank you Very much I want to thank, as always Our Chief Creative Content Officer Connor Lloyd-Cruz Who is editing everything Uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 65 next week Will be about Akira Kurosawa. We're going to go back and do an old-school Secret Movie Club director podcast. And ironically, since Seven Samurai is my Desert Island movie, it's funny that it's taken a 65 podcast to get to Akira Kurosawa. But that is the beauty of cinema, is that you never run out of amazing things to talk it's about. It's like a box of chocolate. So uh, that'll be next week. Thank you, everybody, for being a part of this. Have a great week. I will talk to you all soon. Thank you, Jamie. And uh, Secret Movie Clubbers, watch great movies. And thank you for being part of Secret Movie Club. Bye,
1: Bye everybody. Bye. Bye.
4: All right.